Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. In the early 1930s, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, PhD at the ripe age of 21, came to visit Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And while he was there, he attended many of the prominent mainline churches in the city, but he found himself vexed by their lack of theological depth, their lack of orthodoxy, but as he came to see later, it was most of all, it was their lack of passion. Bonhoeffer was in many ways uh, a typical German, we'll, we'll stereotype just a touch here, not exactly predisposed to huge displays of emotion, but what he saw in the city discouraged him thoroughly, until it was that he went to Harlem. Bonhoeffer began to attend and participate in the black churches in the city and was deeply moved by the power of the Holy Spirit in their gatherings, the conviction of the preaching between both preacher and congregation, and the integration of justice into the larger gospel message. Bonhoeffer began to attend and serve at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, and later, reflecting on his time and the impact of the church that the, the church had had on him, he said before New York, I had not yet become a Christian. We are creatures that are constructed and oriented by love. We will pursue the things that we love, no matter how small they may be, with intensity and singleness of purpose. Now, we tend to think of ourselves as rational, independent beings, right? That we make decisions based on process. This is, in fact, at the heart of most of the schooling in the United States. It's basically approached from the framework of, we're going to tell you a bunch of information, then you will know it. We've downloaded it to you, so now you can spit it back out. This kind of pedagogy expresses the classic statement by Descartes, I think, therefore I am, and goes back to the platonic ideal that, that says that we are souls trapped in bodies, and that our bodies are not a, the truest part about us. Now, we assume this kind of calculating detachment about our own lives, right? As if we are taking in all of the data and then making decisions from that place. It's as if we are like computers just running a software. But that's not actually how it works to be human, is it? Dr. Peter Noel Murray, a, psych a psychologist, has done work examining the processes that leads consumers to make a purchase. He says that consumers vastly overestimate their immunity to marketing influence because of something called systematic bias. Essentially, what his conclusion is, is that we, are, we all think that we're a lot more logical than we actually are. Look at what he writes. If consumers were rational, the process would stop at the point of analyzing how well the product features and attributes satisfy needs and motivations. But that is not the case. It is the consumer's perceptions of emotional payoffs that cause purchase behavior. Essentially, those ads that you see in your social media feed that for the one time that you Googled something and they just keep showing up, they're just trying to slowly wear you down because they know, they know you're not a rational being. They know that you are suspect and subject to be worn down by the constant influence and just the subtle suggestion that you need this. James K. Smith, in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, describes what he calls cultural liturgies in order to illustrate this point. He says, everything in our culture that competes for your allegiance has embodied 
formational practices attached to them. To give one example, Smith describes the liturgy of the shopping mall. Do you remember those? He describes them as temples of the modern spirituality. Huge and open and sprawling, windows open to the heavens, the mannequins, the statues as testimonies and witnesses to the good life, the space governed by the festive calendar, adorned in the colors of the season. There's no doctrine here. It's all super relevant and chill. There's nothing being shoved in your face. Only imagination, possibility, images. You too, the mall declares, you too can participate in this good life by simply giving into that impulse to buy that shirt. That shirt is really going to change things for you. It's going to make you the person that you always have known deep down that you are. It's going to satisfy that deep ache in your soul. All you need to do is complete the transaction. Walk over to the priest behind the counter. Make your sacrifice. Exchange the currency in exchange for the new life that awaits you. Now, if you've ever had an addiction, you know that It is by nature, not rational. In fact, addiction, no matter what its object, at its heart is is something trying to dominate your logic and your will. Desire in an addictive state takes on such a strong character that the longing, the pain, the absence is felt physically and the need feels as if it must be satisfied or you will die. But addiction counseling doesn't just say, hey, you know, your addiction is not reasonable, right? You know, you shouldn't do that. Addicts know that at their heart. Addiction counseling doesn't take that approach because that doesn't help them. Rather, the counselor will do the slow and painful work of healing the outsized desire, placing it within its proper perspective, trying to show the addict that they have truer and better desires, the desire to be a good friend or a good husband or wife or father or mother. The the 12-step program of the addiction counselor is trying to say, you are ordered by your desires, but there are deeper and truer desires that define who you are. And as we continue our series on the book of Revelation this morning, as we've been tracking along with this mysterious and monumental book and trying to see what it has to say to our church and to the larger church in America right here and right now, we're going to look at a letter where Jesus points to their desires and tries to get at the heart of what it is that they want. The letter we're going to look at today is the seventh in a series of seven words that Jesus offers to seven different churches spread throughout Asia Minor. Now, if you've read the other words that Jesus offers in this, in this succession of seven letters, usually there are a lot of comforting words, words of exhortation, words of good job, not with the letter that we're going to read today. He writes to the church at Laodicea, And in his message, he offers an urgent warning. The seven words to the seven churches each addressed specific situations that those churches were facing. And and they all operate uh, operate off a similar framework. And I, I just want to illustrate that framework very quickly as following. First, there is an acknowledgement of the presence of Jesus in their midst. John, in his initial vision of Jesus, sees the one like a son of man, this glorious vision of the resurrected Christ, walking in the midst of seven lampstands. And then he offers the interpretation for what those lampstands mean. They are the seven churches that he's writing to. Jesus is present. He says to each church as he addresses them, I know. 
And in the very first word to the churches, Jesus seen as the one walking among the lampstands, what, what John is trying to convey and illustrate here is that Jesus' knowledge is not just of a, a heavenly ruler, as if some emissary has come to report on the status of the churches to him as he sits up on his throne. No, Jesus dwells in the midst of these churches. He knows not because he's been told. He knows because he's there. He's present. Jesus' knowledge is experiential. It's relational. He is present in these faith communities, and he is empowering them to live in the way that he has for them. So the first part of the framework that we see in each of the letters to the churches is simply presence. The second is pressure. Each church is facing hardship from within or from without or both. These forces are trying to compress the vision of the church to move it away from faithfulness to the risen Jesus who is reigning right now. Jesus' knowledge expresses that he knows the cultural pressure that they face to conform. He knows those who are trying to snuff out their life. He is aware of it all and he urges them in the face of it all to be faithful, to not shrink back. You know, it's an interesting exercise to think about what some of the societal and cultural pressures that our church, Ecclesia, here in Princeton, might face, and what the larger church in our nation and in the West is facing. These are are good uh, lenses to look at our life and what it means to follow Jesus in this moment through. The last piece of this very simple framework, as we've talked about presence, as we've talked about pressure, is promise. Jesus' warning and his exhortation to repentance and to endure and persevere is always met with a renewed vision of promise. The one who has overcome the world by his blood on the cross and by his resurrection will meet us in our temptations to lesser lives and he will empower us to stand and hold fast. He will pour out his gifts of presence and blessing for all of eternity. So as we've seen this simple framework, we want to look at the letter to the Laodiceans. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to pull it out. Otherwise, if you're using a second screen, Revelation 3, it's at the back of the book. It's super easy to find. Let's read, beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works, says Jesus. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. Because you are so lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus greets them. By identifying himself, he is the amen, the so be it to the promises of the covenant of God, the true witness, the one who has stood firm in the face of the darkness uh, that he endured on the cross and the origin of God's creation, the one through whom and in whom all things were created. He begins his words to the church with presence, I know. I'm here. I'm walking in your midst. And then he goes on to spell out what he says in his warning. And look at his warning. He says, your works are neither cold nor hot. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, some have thought that Jesus is saying here, man, I I wish you all would just pick a side, right? It'd be easier for me as God if I knew which team you were on. Hot being you're on my team. Cold being you're on the other side. But 
I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think there's more going on. The city of Laodicea, and again, we talked about how each of these letters addresses certain contexts, certain places, certain situations. The city of Laodicea was successful, cultured. The church itself reflected the ethos of the city. You know, the young, young professionals who, who have made a good living for themselves. And according to their own self-assessment, the Laodicean church, their social status, their education, their wealth had made them self-sufficient and proud. They, they realized that, man, like we've, look at what we've done, look at what we've built. And the city of Laodicea, As Jesus begins to talk about hot and cold water, the city of Laodicea had itself no water supply of its own. The Hierapolis to the north was flush with these natural hot springs, these, you know, beautiful uh, natural features that were so welcoming and warm. The mountains, on the other hand, provided cool springs to other cities, but not for Laodicea. Laodicea had to pipe in water, and by the time that the the irrigation canals and the pipes reached the city, it was lukewarm. Now, think about this in our own lives. Hot water and cold water both have uses. Hot water is great for bathing and washing, great for warming coffee and tea. Cold water is refreshing to drink. But what is lukewarm water good for? You don't drink it. You don't want to bathe in it. It's completely uncomfortable. Jesus is saying that the Laodiceans church, uh, the Laodicean church's self-sufficiency and pride has caused them to be like lukewarm water, useless. Their desires are being used for the wrong thing, and thus they are not good for anything. Disordered desires are like lukewarm water. Jesus' assessment of them as a church is far different than their own conclusions. Jesus says to this, to this group of people who are well-educated, cultured, successful, financially independent, he says to them, you're not rich, but you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Oh, this one hurts. It's scathing critique. But Jesus then offers his challenge to repentance. Look in verse 18. Therefore, I counsel you, Buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white robes to clothe you, and to keep the shame of nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Notice this, Jesus says, I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. The gold refined by fire that Jesus describes here is the goodness and presence of God that is revealed not in spite of suffering, but through suffering. This is what Bonhoeffer experienced in the black church of his day and and really persists on into our day. A faith that has been formed in a furnace, a faith of beauty tried and tested and true because of the way that the people have suffered. Jesus is saying to the Laodicean church, you are self-satisfied. You think you have everything all together, but you are missing the best stuff because you are committed to providing for yourself more than trusting that I have a better life for you. Jesus urges the Laodicean church to buy white robes. One of the major industries of Laodicea was black wool. It was a cultural marker, a symbol of the prosperity of the city and belonging to the city. And Laodicea, was a place where wearing black clothes actually signified that you were a part of this cultural success, that you were a part of the in culture, that you were fashionably forward. 
Jesus says, go the other way. Laodicea also was at home to a famous medical school that would have offered healing ointments for the eyes and the ears. And Jesus is addressing the very center of civic pride as he, as he points to these different things. He points to the lukewarm water, to the clothing industry, uh, to the, the healing and med- medicinal school. And Jesus urges the church there to go against the cultural grain, to live differently, which will, yes, will, which will purchase suffering for them. When we go against the flow of the wider culture around us, it causes us not to be combative, not to, not to look at the world around us in, in contempt or in animosity and, and say, oh, look how much better we are than they are. No, but it does cause friction. As we, as the people of God, collectively live out a better way, we do so in all love and humility, but that way often brings suffering. Jesus is challenging the church here to love rightly, to order their desires towards himself. And it seems so counterintuitive. Seek the gold of suffering. Mark yourselves as a people different from the cultural around you. But within all of this is the question of desire, the question of what's worth it. Is financial security, self-sufficiency, self-help, self-definition the best way? Or is he... Jesus, this risen one, truly the way, the truth, and the life. The Laodiceans are submitting to the pressure. They are accommodating to the culture's standard of the good life. They think that because they have what they need materially, that the spiritual houses are in order. But Jesus is saying, you are blind and poor. I think this letter is such a pressing challenge for our day. We live daily with the siren song of instant gratification, any contentment to follow the lesser lights of this world in the face of this risen glorious Savior that John sees in Revelation that addresses himself to the Laodicean church, any contentment to settle for lesser things is idolatry. Trying to find meaning and fulfillment in the things of this world. We have to ask ourselves earnestly, where are we trying to be self-sufficient? Where have we deceived ourselves in order to say that we are rich, that we have everything that we need, and Jesus is standing right in front of us and saying, no, you're like the emperor with no clothes on. You think that you are self-sufficient, but really you are poor and pitiable. Our culture has a self-sufficient definition of God. We as a people often fail to take God's word seriously because we think that we can learn all we need to know about God from our own desires. We have this kind of intrinsic perspective on God. We think that we can learn all we need to know about God, not from his word about what it means to the church, but by studies on personality or sociology or culture. And friends, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. But we often think that we can arrive at conclusions about God because all truth claims in in our uh, own mind are reflective of our postmodern culture. And any sort of settled uh, sense of who God is and what he's asking from us, how he's asking us to live in the world, is is in our modern view, our postmodern view really, just a, a vying for power, a violence of narratives. Many in the church today are lukewarm about their desire for God and thus present a lukewarm vision of the Christian faith to the rest of the world. 
But what if our desires were hot or cold as Jesus urges us towards, oriented toward their proper ends? What if we desired to see as Jesus taught us to pray, to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? What if we desired to see justice for our neighbors? What if we desired to see our neighbors come to know Jesus? Friends, this is the burning hot passion of the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. Ecclesia, what if we desired the things of God, lived with a holy discontentment about our own self-sufficiency, and truly were a people marked by hanging on every word that comes from the mouth of God? The question that's left to us is, will we choose the way of pride and self-sufficiency, or will we choose the way that Jesus offers? Jesus in John 14 says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we all look, you could read the conclusions, the promises that that are offered to each church in Revelation that Jesus holds out. We see the life that he offers, the rewards, and we say, wow, I want that. But we don't get the Jesus life, as Jesus says in John 14, without the Jesus way and the Jesus truth. There are no shortcuts to the Jesus life. But there are also no dead ends that grace cannot navigate. To the Laodiceans who Jesus says are poor, blind, and naked, look at what Jesus does and he says, Revelation 3 verse 20, he says, Listen, I am standing at the door. I am knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in with you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne. Just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, let anyone, anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is such a beautiful word of invitation and grace. Pay attention, Ecclesia. Jesus says, listen. Pay attention. I'm at the door. I'm knocking. You don't have to live within the small confines of your own self-sufficiency or your own small definitions of who God is. He has more for us. He wants more for us than lukewarm life. So he comes to us. He comes to share a meal with us, to lead us on the patient road of the long obedience in the same direction, to share life with us. Repentance is not a joyless existence. It's not putting off all our desires. It's finding the truest and most beautiful fulfillment of those desires. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in The Cost of Discipleship, if we answer the call to discipleship, where will it lead us? What decisions and partings will it demand? To answer this question, we shall have to go to him, for only he knows the answer. Only Jesus Christ, who bids us follow him, knows the journey's end. But we do know this, that it will be a road of boundless mercy. Discipleship means joy. Jesus is knocking at the doors of our lives, sounding the call to every person. Let anyone who has ears hear, sounding the call to discipleship. And the question for us today is, will we open the door? It's haunting to me that he doesn't break down the door. He will not subvert our wills. He won't take over our personalities and say, we're going to do it this way now. He simply knocks patiently, consistently, unfailingly, and he offers himself 
just as he did on the cross when he became for us naked, poor, wretched, and pitiable. The cross shows us that God's love for us is not lukewarm. It is as patient as an ancient glacier, chilled and cold and steady, and it is a raging inferno burning down the walls of sin and death and anything that would lie to us and say that it has separated us from God. Jesus comes and he knocks. The question remains for us, will we trust him? Will we trust that his way is the best way for our desires? Or will we stay in our lukewarm, ill-fitted desires, desires that are trying to find eternal fulfillment in temporal things? Bonhoeffer, this time, is in New York for a second time, this time in 1939. The Third Reich, over the course of the decade, has risen to unchallenged power and has co-opted the German church. Bonhoeffer knows, as he's in New York City, that he could stay in the States, teach at the seminary, continue to write letters and papers, trying to alert the world to the dark forces that Germany has fallen under. But in that moment, he decides to return to his homeland. His friends beg him to stay because they know that danger awaits him, but he goes back to Germany. And if you know the end of the story of Bonhoeffer, you know that we love the heroism of this story. But if we're honest, the calculus is still hard for us. How could Bonhoeffer leave behind a life of safety and refuge and go towards the suffering? How could he, as Jesus invites the Laodicean church to do, purchase with his life gold refined by fire? But Bonhoeffer had seen a vision seen a people in the black church in New York City who demonstrated the overcoming power of the gospel, not to deny or minimize suffering, but through the very valor of suffering itself to find that God was ever present and ever overcoming. So Bonhoeffer returned to Germany. He lived a life subverting the evils of Nazi Germany and on April 9, 1945, was hanged by the Nazis at Flossenburg. The question for us, as it was for Bonhoeffer, as it was for the Laodiceans, is it worth it? What do we really desire? Do we desire comfort? Do we desire our own small, fitting definitions of God? Is it worth embracing the suffering when we don't have to? Is it worth entering in, uh, buying the gold that's refined by fire? Is it worth giving up our own self-sufficiency, our small definitions of God, to enter into a life where limits, uh, there are limits set on our desires, but, but they are pointed towards the one thing that will satisfy? The testimony of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the testimony of Jesus, the faithful and true witness and the church throughout history is that the answer to the question, is it worth it? Is he enough for our desires? Is a resounding yes. He is knocking on the door. Will we answer his call to our hearts? And will we find that in him, all our our desires find their true end and we find what it means to truly be human? to truly live out of the light of the story that Jesus has for us. He is knocking on each one of our hearts. Will we repent of our small ways? And will we open the door and find that he comes in not to chastise, not to condemn, but to share a meal with us? He's knocking. Will we answer? Is he worth it? Let's pray. Jesus, your goodness goes before us, God. 
Lord, would you make us a people who by our very lives, God, by our desires, bear witness to the fact that you are worth it. God, that you are more. Jesus, you're more than our self-sufficiency, God. You're more than the things that we can provide for ourselves. You're also more than we would ever define you as. God, that you're more than our culture's definition of what God has to be. You're so much better, so much more welcoming, so much more beautiful. God, would we repent of the ways that we have been satisfied in the accomplishments of our own hands, God, that we have bowed down to idols. God, would you make us a people of the faithful witness, God's yes and amen, the origin of creation, God, who bear witness to the fact that you, in and through suffering, have overcome the world. Jesus, for those of us today who think that we can't open the door because you're, you're not a God of love, you're not a God who can forgive and heal our shame, Lord, we see the burning passion in your eyes, God. Your love is not lukewarm, your love is a fire. God, and it is drawing near to us to offer us your warmth and purification, God, to offer us the beauty of your spirit. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.